0: My name is Bea Gonzalez, and I am a
1: writer of mostly novels. And I'm Jay Rettelsberger, a singer-songwriter.
0: We began a conversation on Twitter some time ago about Carl Jung, art, and the creative process, and we decided to share our discussion with all of you.
1: So uh, just like I was saying a second ago, I've got some sage incense burning from New Mexico that I picked up this summer, and uh, I thought it would be appropriate. We did have a little bit of a discussion earlier in the week via text or messenger about landscape, place, what attracts us to landscapes, what they mean, what they do for us, how they make us feel. And I think I've told you this before. I don't know if I've talked about it here is, you know, there was a period from 2015 to 2018, so four years, where I would go on solo trips to the desert. It's something that I'd always wanted to do. Uh, When I used to live in California, and I'd make the drive all the way from Oklahoma to California and and back, that was my favorite part, was driving through the desert. And I told myself, I'm going to photograph. I'm going to take trips and photograph it someday. So that's what I did. Saw some amazing things. But why the desert? What is that pull for me? And I've been taking some time thinking about that this week. One thing before I really get into what I think pulls me to it is I think I've been a little bit influenced by a book that I've read several years ago uh, about people, ancient people that lived in the Southwest and still live in the Southwest. And that's Frank Waters, uh, The Book of the Hopi. And he basically he he claims that he had access to some of the hopi elders and he had primary resources to their mythology and symbolism a lot of a lot of great stories but a big part of the hopi mythology is these groups of people in the southwest migrating because their god basically instructed them at certain points to find their home place. And and one of the places they had to wander was the desert, which is where they ended up settling in central Arizona. They live on top of three mesas there and they live very humbly. And I don't want... So Frank Waters is often criticized by archaeologists for kind of idealizing this culture. Uh, In fact, there was a time in the 1960s where when the whole counterculture thing was happening, that hippies had taken that that idea, and started showing up at these mesas where the Hopis live. Mm. And they're like, you know, they were hoping to catch some of what they had or what they were doing because it'd been this idealized thing. Mm. And so it makes for this, you know, um, it makes for this weird thing, and it didn't last long. But anyway, mm. this idea of wandering through the desert, you see that cross-culturally, I think. I, I think there's something archetypal about it whether you're looking at Moses in the 40 years or Jesus in the 40 days it's almost like it kind of goes to alchemy in a way it's like a a time of purification a time of distilling what's so essential because the desert is such a scarce environment you know there's very Mm -hmm. little water it's hot, it's dry. And so I've always felt a connection with the desert because of those things. Because when I've gone, I've gone by myself. And that's been a very important thing for me. And and it connects me to something. It connects me, I feel, those trips that I took really connected me to a deeper aspect of myself because I was able to kind of, as they say in agriculture with wheat, you know, sifting through all the the uh, the chaff, getting the grain from, from the chaff. So that's what I kind of, I've always felt with the desert is it, it's a place to distill really what you value most or what I value most. That's what it's been like for me. Is there a place for you, a particular type of landscape that you would say that calls to you?
0: So it's not the desert. <laughs> I mean, I, I what you were saying is very beautiful, but I think everybody has one, and some people like all of them, but I think everybody has one place that they're really connected to or one type of landscape. And it's interesting. We've talked about this. Maybe it's just um, our connection to our childhood, where, where we were born. You were born in an area where the desert is close, right, or closer. Uh, uh, where I was born in Spain, it is the northwest where, you know, there's ocean and there's trees, lots of them, uh, lost of forests. And so my preferred, when I want to have an experience of that nature, connecting, I would rather go to the forest. And it's interesting because... um uh, when I used to have the, the time that you know how motifs show up in your dreams from time to time they were in yes. you know, as a kid so whenever I when I was going through a lot of meditation when I when I had a dream that was set and I could tell it was Galicia because that's the part of Spain I'm from um, and it would actually almost tell me in the dream you're now in Galicia I would know that it was a, a moment in my life when I was connecting really deeply uh, through meditation and through you know whatever other uh contemplative Practices I was doing at the time, And so it was, it's always been a marker, and that's weird. It could choose anything. Now I would say Galicia also is one of the the, the place in Spain with the most monasteries. This is where people sort of hermits went to live mm-hmm. because you can hide in a hill and nobody will find you, right? And because it's a part of Spain that kind of jets out to the Atlantic, nobody invaded it, nobody cared, so it's great for isolation. So maybe that's the other part that I'm. I, I'm I, okay. So I'm interested in isolation but not the way you've described it, not the, not, not around the desert kind of area. I really want to feel like there is life. And I, I'm sure sh- this is not true. I know it's not true. Okay. But deserts seem more lifeless to me than forests. Forests seem very, I know that the desert will have different types of life forms. I'm not saying it, right. but I'm just saying that it feels so much more teeming with life. And so when we were talking about this to, you know, just chat, uh, we talked about how, is there a way you could match a landscape to typology? Because we generally, you and I generally have some very long discussions about typology. Um, we're still not quite sure what to make the <laughs> most of it, or we get confused. and it's just something we, we try to work out. Uh, and we, we sort of started playing around with that. And with, uh, with the uh, forest, I, I think it's definitely sensation, uh, just because of all the, you're really rooted to the earth, just like the tree is. Uh, You're not looking at the sky generally because the trees will block it. At least in the redwoods, you you, you find that experience, which is amazing, by the way. It's probably one of my favorite types of forests. But anyway, the point is that you're you're not you're really connected to the ground, the ground beneath you, and I think that is sensation and of course we always think about the big sensation uh work which is lord of the rings there's nothing that can be more sensitive than that and the hobbits are the ultimate sensation creatures they love eating they love each other they're living in the moment they don't care about uh, big philosophizing. it's not their, their thing so i think that's why first of all of course family that's where we're um i'd go in the summers and it was beautiful and whatever but, but the second thing is i do i am attracted to that that feeling of um being rooted to the earth somehow, and 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 the forest seems to to do that. Even though, of course, it's you know it's full of other things. Um, so we talked about the desert. What do you think the desert types do? Because we sort of went back and forth on this, right? What do you think?
1: Wandering is the first thing that comes to my mind. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a place It's a place to uh, you know. I mean, it's almost cliche to say wandering through the desert, and to me wandering would be the extreme side of intuition. And and I'm fairly intuitive, I'd say. And and so there there's something about that is is you can get you can get lost wandering if if you do, because sometimes you're in places that you know there's very little differentiation in right. the landscape. So that would be intuition, I think. Um, okay.
0: And so I'm going to add like a, another element is if you go to the pre-Socratics, the Heraclitus in particular, they develop the idea of the four elements. So you can match the elements as well. So you can say sensation matches to earth. Definitely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the forest is matched to earth. And when I think of um, the desert because of the heat, the dry heat, that definitely matches to fire, which actually types on to intuition. That's what they, that uh, Jung, I think, would call intuition. So it makes sense. It's a hot, hot place. And yes, interesting. You can do contemplation in both places, right? You can do it in in mountains, definitely. I don't know what's different. I think it depends on the person. I I don't know why the desert, given that I think I'm very high on intuition, I don't know why the desert doesn't attract me. I guess it should. It should feel somehow, but it it doesn't. And I don't know. I'm sure people will say you've never been there, which is true. So I may go there and think, wow, this is the best thing. But yeah at the the it doesn't, yeah
1: what if I said uh what I'm gonna say something and you tell okay. me what 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 you feel about this? The desert is where you go to appreciate water,
0: right. So I know that that's because of course deserts don't have water, right, but I right. like okay, go ahead, so how are you gonna argue this?
1: So how would you look at that metaphorically?
0: uh deserts don't have water okay metaphorically I would say that uh the feeling function isn't engaged in the in the desert at all right
1: okay, okay. <laughs> we're there, going that so, direction <laughs> there's so little water so so that, that way well, the the other thing I would I would say though is you could look at another way and say that the lack of water is what allows you to understand the importance of water
0: that's true. That's so if you're happened. looking
1: at it metaphorically, maybe there was in water is the element for filling, and that would be the ocean, seas, uh, bodies of water. If that if that would if that's the take, then perhaps through me those years going to the desert, perhaps there was something that helped me connect with my feeling side and doing so.
0: No, I, absolutely, that makes sense to me. So, but let's go back. Let's rewind before those years. That wasn't the only time you were attracted to deserts, right? Prior to that, no. you were already okay. So, this is a lifelong thing, right? Would you mm-hmm. say the people who live around you in Oklahoma are equally attracted, or Colorado? Let's say or New Mexico, these places where these the places Arizona, I guess, would would the people who live there naturally be attracted if they were raised there? Do you think? Because would, would you, if you surveyed people, do you think? You know that the idea that wherever you are, waste kind of landscape is, what you kind of see, search, seek out after. Would you say that's a that people in your neck of the woods really like the desert in that way?
1: I don't. I don't know. A lot of people. I'm just gonna. A lot of people are not that connected to landscape.
0: Okay, yeah, that's a that's a good thing to say. I mean, just because we are doesn't mean everybody else is for sure, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's difficult to get that feel. But most people around here, I would say when they uh, of the landscape around here, because we live in a very flat area uh, and it is very dry. The The place where I grew up, you know, got, you know, received uh, maybe twenty five, twenty seven inches of rain a year. Oh, uh, uh, and, it, and it was very dry and the hottest one of the hottest places in the country. So. Oklahoma is very hot a lot of people in the summer they like to go to New Mexico and Colorado and go up in the mountains where it's cool I haven't I've met a few Oklahomans though that have a deep uh, appreciation for the desert I I have actually a friend or two that do but I wouldn't say that that's the that's the norm right
0: right well because you know I think we we talked about how bodies of water yes they're feeling then there's specific feeling tones like the beach that's a very specific feeling tone that I doesn't speak mm-hmm. to me uh right. the vast ocean if you're looking at lakes uh, we're obviously in toronto and ontario we have incredible amounts of beautiful lakes uh those have a different feel uh it just it really depends the part of spin i'm from the atlantic crashes into rocks it's really spectacular totally different feel so um but uh with desert i don't know how to differentiate <laughs> desert okay so so you remember how we talked about that the master in a, any type is the one who could di- differentiate within that type so yeah. feeling type can can differentiate between different feeling states and can actually know what they value and they feel it. Right. Um, so when I think of the beach, I think that is a very typical hmm, giggle um, feeling state. It's not a deep feeling state, right? A swamp can be a very, very interesting feeling state. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So there's many types. When I think about the desert, right. I struggle with, with uh, okay. How do we, you know, cause you, you, you there's, I guess you, do, if, if you think of intuition, I guess the other thing is you, do you just you just see forever and ever and there's nothing right there's not a mountain to interrupt there's nothing
1: oh no no no, no 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 the De- deserts can be very diverse in the southwest okay. so you can have you can see mountain ranges in the distance oh, okay all right so it's um, not really desert it's you know it's not Lawrence of Arabia desert it's not it's not it's not it's not Saudi Arabia or anything like that, you know, but there, there's a diversity, there's, there's life, but it's, it's, uh, and there's lots of rock formations and, and uh, mesas and, and whatnot. Um, So it's not necessarily flat and it's not, um, uh, you know, there's lots of canyons and um, there are some uh, different types of the year streams and whatnot. And they have a rainy season, actually, all their rain comes at once, which is, you know, yeah. No. So, um, so you're
0: not really when you speak about uh, desert in the Southwest. I guess my problems. I haven't been in those spaces. So what I'm conceptualizing is more well, cinematic. You, yeah. Yeah. But,
1: you've been to Sedona, right?
0: I've been to Sedona. Is that a considered I, a desert? Yes. Okay. So that, that that. Been- Okay. All right. So that, 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 well, in Phoenix was Desiree, like, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't, so that's true. I have been, but I guess I was thinking more again, I was thinking more of these vast spaces where you the beginning and the end. And that to me actually matches very well with intuition because intuition seems to have that quality. of just vastness, you know, and the ability to look way beyond what everybody, what you can normally see. Okay. So we talk about sensation being tied to the hobbits or the forest. Um, the water, I think, feeling is pretty simple, you know. Um, and then fire and intuition with the desert. Okay, what about this? Is when we got stumbled upon. And I've I've had since I've sort of exchanged ideas. We have had more ideas. So the idea of what matches to air, or what what landscape is
1: airy. I would say because of our conversation, <laughs> I would I would say that uh, where I am actually the plains is pretty area this is a very windy part of the country too uh we get um but it's very flat you can see for you know uh quite a long way to the horizon um you can see the the earth you can by looking at the sky you can see the 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 curvature or whatever the the shape And so it's, it's uh, really, it's expansive and you can see all over the place and it's really hot, but a a lot of sky, a lot of air. Right.
0: So can I, can I put maybe, okay, I know the prairies, we're talking about that Canadian prairies are quite famous for you go and you lose your sense of wherever the heck you are, because the skies are so incredible. Um, So, okay, but. I thought about it and I thought about it, okay. and I don't think I want the – it doesn't make sense to me that they are okay. in some way. Because it's still air, right? Air just seems like something that is in the middle of things. It's not a landscape. So how about – what do you think of this? Um, I thought about it and I that actually air would match to the cities we create because air to me is mm-hmm. thinking. And thinking is only available as far as we know to humans, and humans have created different landscapes using the thinking tools, right? So I started thinking, well, most of us live in these ridiculously large cities, so are these landscapes something we're just going to ignore? Um and I think that's the thing that no, most yeah, 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 and they're all right, right. But who? I mean, they match. They certainly don't match feeling because feeling is hard to regenerate in a place where this is my city, where there's millions of people living around, right? Um, and sensation, yes, because there's a lot going on. You know, there's no problem there. Intuition, hard to see. You know, can't see beyond a certain point. There's a building in front of you, um, and then, but but air makes so much sense to me because I look at it as the element. At least if you look at the way it was conceptualized, that is the most human. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so and thinking is the one I'd say the dominant function today, just generally the way that what's respected, what's what's uh, admired is the thinking function. Right. People who are thinkers, people, rationality. Uh, yeah, I know we have we have also really imperfect shadow side of um, that. But, you know, in general, people would like to be considered great communicators, great thinkers, which is something that I associate with there. And so, yeah, if you match it, it has to be something that I think has to be man made. You're not going to say that anything?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can add anything to that. That was pretty good. Well,
0: you know, the thing is, uh, you, when you think about it, I mean, landscapes, we always think of landscapes or places that we retreat to. Some people come to the city, as yeah, crazy as it may sound. That's true. You know, uh, true. because because maybe the value culture and there's uh, many types of restaurants. So I'm just thinking what's available in Toronto. Uh, or just they want to be are milling about in places where, you know, there's art galleries, museums, and whatever, Right. Uh, so it becomes a trip. It's not only going out to the forest and some people actually find it really stimulating, you know, Mm -hmm. for their creative work for whatever it is. So anyway, so I think those are the four, I don't know why we had to go through that except that we're always trying to refine, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like my conversations with you are often trying (laughs) an attempt on both our parts to refine the whole issue of typology, which I think is really mixed up and I think can get really uh, confusing. So, so this sort of came into the, into the, um, Whatever, what is what are they coming to into our conversation? I think immediately matched to the typological realm, and also I think if you know for people in general, I do think in in dreams you should really you should really pay attention to where you are in your dream, like what kind of surroundings you're in, because it, it often has a lot to say about what the dream's intention is or what the meaning of there's such a thing. Do you think?
1: Whenever well, whenever we first started talking, actually, uh, whenever I started telling you about dreams that i was having in the moment the first few that i told you about were located in the desert
0: yeah i remember that i remember that that's it right but it's one of those things where you know now that i and this is where i think dream interpretation you know it's good to have a group or people you're dealing with on um, who you know pretty well because you know i didn't know that at the time i know a lot more about you now and I could, you know, it adds, it adds shading, right? So when you're working with a group for a lot many years, you know a lot about their lives and the dreams start making sense within the context of that particular life, right? Because there's always the, what the desert means to you and what it will mean to me will be two very completely different feeling states. Uh, so yeah, so I had forgotten about that until you brought it up again. But it, it seems to me, given the way I, I know you now, that, that that would be very significant, right?
1: Yes. <laughs> tell me what you've been reading here lately.
0: Well, what I've been reading. I've been reading a book um, by Lance Owens. Let me tell you who Lance Owens is, first of all. So Lance Owens was a medical doctor. I think actually he um, was an ER doctor for many years, became interested in Jung's work, I think in the 80s, and then really got deeply interested and started being a lecturer. And I found him because he's particularly interested in J.R. Tolkien's work, and I am as well. And then he gave a great talk about that. So years ago, I had seen uh, a talk he gave, and then I started following him on Academia Edu. I mean, I don't, I don't know if people are on there, but he's got he he puts a lot of stuff up there. And I saw he had this book called um, Well, what is the the full name of the book? I should probably get that. Give me a sec. Um, Mysterium is in the word. I know that. Okay, uh, it's Jung in Love: The Mysterium in Liber So in the red book, and. <clears throat> And I was kind of intrigued. First of all, the the, the title is intriguing, Jung and Love. I mean, it's not something, you know, we, people always talk about Jung's affair with, with Tony uh, Wolf, et cetera, but it just seemed like an interesting way to look at it. But it kind of resonated with me because when I read the Red Book and I thought the Red Book is, a, you know, I think everybody should read the Red Book. That's kind of where I, what the big theme that I saw as well. And his argument is that fundamentally what the Red Book is about is and I think nobody would really argue with this part of it, he just goes a little bit more in depth, that it's Jung's um, attempt, successful attempt to bring his feeling, nature, online, which had not been online. But in doing so, he identifies the need for the world at large to bring feeling online. So, so far, are you with me? Does that make sense to you in terms of what Mm -hmm. you know about Jung's work? Okay, so then he goes a little bit for people who are interested in getting in the weeds. And by the way, if you go to academia.edu, he has actually uploaded this book as a PDF and you can read it, which is incredibly generous of him. So you can go in there and grab it and, and see what you think. Um, he then goes into all this kind of thing that there's written about, about did he have an affair with Sabrina Spiro? And, you know, all these people that went through, he, basically he says Tony Wolf is because that the time he was seeing Tony Wolf, who came to him, uh, he had gone through a psych, sort of a psychotic break and came to see him for a while. And anyway, it was his relationship to Tony Wolf that really opened this all up, right? What's really interesting about it, too, is that um, it was his dreams that were guiding him to actually get involved with Tony Wolf, And some of them are just, you know, really interesting just to read about it, if you're interested in dreams. Anyway, so his idea is that the, the objective world in which things have to happen, you can't individuate on a mountain. We've talked about this before. So on one level, he was getting involved with Tony Wolf breaking every rule that he felt he should follow, whether it's you know because he's a good a uh, good husband or you know good citizen. On the other hand, he was going through an inner journey that was mirroring both. And that only by doing the right book and going through that, did he actually realize that this is a way that you individuate, that you meet someone in the objective world who actually is carrying a bit of whatever in the case of a, a man, his anima, in the case of a woman, uh, her animus. And at first, you can't distinguish what is what but then through the process of especially conscious work and these two are doing really good conscious work right you can distinguish which is which and in that process you learn a lot about yourself and then the connection he made later was that this is what was in alchemy because alchemy has all sorts of weird figures you know with king and queen getting together and you wonder what what's that all about um you know i've made a joke before that this is what dan brown has taken and partly into you know these, these million dollar multi-million dollar books but it's a dumbing down of a very, very difficult concept because if you read alchemical works, they're extremely difficult because it's all very symbolic. But ultimately what it is, is can you retrieve those parts of yourself, right? That you've projected on whoever it is that you found and you made a connection in the external world. And what does that say about your inner life? Okay, so what I thought we'd do, see if I can get you involved is to read a paragraph that comes right at the beginning, and I think it kind of says it all, and I thought we could talk about this and see what you think and, and you can also tell me, am I, am I gone have I gone off the edge? <laughs> maybe I'm even being a little bit too much, which for me, you know wouldn't be all that unusual, but anyway, okay, so here's here's the the uh, the uh, paragraph in question at the crossroads of life, Carl Gustav Jung entered the crucible of conjunction and the mystery of love. It was holy, it was sinful, hot and cold flowed one into the other madness and reason wanted to marry opposites embraced intermingled and recognized their oneness and agonizing pleasure so let's just stop there because it goes on and I think we should stop so at the crossroads of life I mean just even begin with that sentence well, what do you think about the crossroads of life like I just think that is so powerful and it's the, the whole the whole paragraph is but we've all been in those moments so if we were to look at this like a like a fairy tale or a story what's a crossroad can can you give me an example of a crossroad that you might have encountered that you you could see in this?
1: When to leave a relationship.
0: Okay, so that's a crossroad in the sense that something has to end, right? And but mm-hmm. what what is it? The cross, right? Pretty familiar, exactly. similar. Okay, so the cross is you're put between two two places that are mm-hmm. that are incompatible in some way. Mm-hmm. The is also, I mean, um, in fairy conflict. tales. Yes, the inner conflict. So the 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 uh, crossroads in a fairy tale are also the places where everything happens. Where you know you have to make a decision: you go in that way or the other way, and then you take all the other things that are, that are going on in your life and you try to make it. So it also reminds me of the idea. And he was in his midlife, starting his midlife rather early today. I think people start their midlife maybe a little later. I think he was about 35, 36. and he was going through his bosses, which would actually he had just broken with Freud. So he personally was going through a period where he had to decide what his work was about. And interesting. Uh, Owens makes a point that he always recognized Freud did a great thing for humanity, he brought sexuality back into the conversation, but Jung understood there was a higher level in which sexuality mm-hmm. could connect you to a, a spiritual uh, sense, and that that's the thing that Freud rejected out of hand because of his rejection completely of of sexual or of religion. And you know, Jung said that wasn't enough. There has to be something else. And this is where part of why they brought mean there's a lot of reasons they broke, but that's a big part of it. And it was through his, then his relationship with Tony Wolf and the whole red book experience that he really was able to see this clearly. Okay. So we go to the next. So at the crossroads of life, uh, Keep putting this up. Uh, he Jung entered the crucible, crucible again of conjunction coming together, the mystery of love. All right. So the mystery of love, that seems kind of weird for if you think about it. I mean, because his work, his later work was called Mysterium, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that Lance Owens makes a point of, which is kind of interesting if you read a whole bunch of other accounts, is that um, the answer when people go into trance, the answer when people have psychedelic trips, the answer when people have religious experiences, is love, right? But that has become so trite and so ridiculous that nobody, everybody's afraid of actually saying it. And yet when they experience that in, in any deep way, they know that that's actually the answer. But how do you convey a concept that's so vast and, you know, so much more sophisticated than a Hallmark card when everything has been reduced, basically, to rom and Hallmark cards? And I think that was part of what Jung encounters at the beginning, the idea that the way it's understood, feeling is understood, is this debased, silly, you know, um, yeah, the, the kind of uh, fodder that, that does create really bad movies and, and really bad mm-hmm. novels. And so this is the problem, that he was facing something really deep that had been cheapened somehow uh, by the, the kind of um, dialogue we were having or the way it was being expressed. Then there comes the next thing. It was holy, it was sinful. Of course, the holy and the sinful. Now, okay, let me ask you something. Do you think that anything you do ever at the crossroads can't be anything other than sinful? If you think about the word sinful, must is it possible but- to... to-
1: can, see it what we be, said. can it be anything other than sin? Yes. Or? If
0: you if you're, if you're looking at the, the okay. So if you're looking at the definition of what the word sin really means, right? To miss the mark, to not to mm-hmm. not to. Uh, okay. Can you ever really reach a crossroads? Right. Dissolve to to reassemble. If you're not committing a sin.
1: No. Right. That's the one of the reasons you're at the crossroads.
0: Exactly. Okay. So that's the way I look at it. So sinful people are going to say, "Yes, you had an affair." I don't think so. I think sinful means um, you've you're you're sinning against the ego's conception of who you are. Mm-hmm. Right. You're you're suddenly not the person you are you thought you were. And it's a very scary moment uh, because I think the ego is the structure that keeps us sort of sane. And when that happens, you're really confronted with who the hell am I, right? So to me, yes, it's, it was holy because it's holy because it was being driven to something much higher than you ever understood, much greater. But at the same time, it had to be sinful. So I, I guess I want to say that because the word sin is just so mis, it's just so misused, I think, because Christianity, frankly, and other well, religions have made it to a,
1: something. It, it's it's about morality, um, it has a heavy, heavily moral bent to it about around rules and whatnot. And to me, that's not what it is. It's more of a psychological thing.
0: Exactly. Well, I think for us, for sure. Of course, we talked about that in our last episode, but it's just, again, coming up. So hot and cold flowed one into the other. Again, I think the, these things is um, hot and cold. I think of planetary archetypes, all archetypes, that, that contain both. Hot is connection. Cold is disconnection. But when they come together, it's it's almost, again, what do you do when these two things are going back and forth uh, without, uh, but anyway, in this case, of course, he's saying it is coming together. Okay. Uh, madness and reason wanted to marry, opposites embraced, intermingled, and recognized their oneness and agonizing pleasure. So the madness and the reason is interesting, because I think the whole story of Jung, and even into late in his life, I don't think he got this, he was honest about it, is that he was always fighting to be seen as an empiricist we've talked about this before Mm -hmm. and madness doesn't really go with empirical anything right in my view i mean what do you make of that sentence
1: well that it was unresolved within him the the and but uh, again i don't know if that ever gets resolved with any of us that you know the the madness reason divide um i don't I, i think that's what the ego is it separates the two
0: right but you think it's actually the same thing just it's like the hot and cold they're just expressions yeah. of okay yes. yeah I, I i tend to agree with you like i think the the thing about him that's that's clear until his his you know near death after his near-death experiences he was not willing to show up as a mystic peter Kingsley says that's what he fundamentally was but he was afraid to be seen that way i think in the climate that he was writing it, i totally understand it he was a doctor he wanted to be seen a doctor and then it brings the thorny problem of what people did with his work afterwards as well but yeah i mean i think yes this is the fundamental problem even within um the red book if you're reading it it it, you see it all over the place that he really wants to come to terms with that his heart was filled filled with wild battle waves of dark and bright rivers rushed together crashing each over another at moments it was pure madness but he endured and he returned from the mysterium a man transformed and i just honestly i love this paragraph and i posted this on facebook i was very very um a lot of people who who love Jung follow me. I don't know why a lot more people didn't like this this uh, paragraph or didn't engage with me on it because I think that is such a powerful paragraph about the whole of what life's about, the whole of what his life is about. I can see it in me. I don't know if you can see those 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 images that he comes out and say, "Yeah, I kind of recognize moments in my life when I've been in this kind of turmoil where I don't know where to go, mm-hmm. where I feel like I'm being driven in two different directions." Right? Mm-hmm.
1: Quite a bit, actually.
0: Yeah. So why do you think people didn't really respond i'm very again I was kind of it was intriguing to me maybe it was because language is very flowery it is a little bit more um maybe overstated and people kind of you know when it comes to this area they like things a little bit less expressive well, could that be it
1: it's expressive but it's also um i I don't know it's <clears throat> I think it's an experience it's I don't have an answer for you.
0: Well, You don't have to. I think one of the great things we both (laughs) talked about this is we don't necessarily have answers. I've been thinking about this a lot. So I'm just throwing it out there. And of course, we don't know what we don't know what people why people aren't engaging or they are maybe it was a bad day or maybe, you know, whatever. Um, But I just thought for me anyway, and maybe this is Lance Owens articulated for me. Uh, I've read so many books on Jung. The one thing that brought Jung together in my mind, in a way I could understand it. That's maybe why. And maybe that says more about me. No, for sure. That says more about me than probably about Jung or anyone else. But I just felt that it, it, yes, this is it. This is the battle we're all fighting whether it's madness reason um the, the idea of being in places where you're, you're pulled between two options you know what to do and of mm-hmm. course the Jungians will were saying this is very true that you wait right for the third you wait for right, something right. else to right well that's
1: okay. that's why jung referred to it as divine conflict right right that, that's that that is christ on the cross that's what right. he's referring to divine conflict there because that's where the uh, that's where the transformation comes that's where that right. third thing comes right. like you were saying
0: Although the third thing, in Christ, the Christ story is death, which is transformation. So you really have to mm-hmm. wait for a, another form to show up and then you mm-hmm. go. And I mean, one way to look at it is, you know, when you're caught between uh, two opposing people, let's say, or the, whatever. I mean, there's so many situations. You do have to wait it out. You have to wait and say, okay, because mm-hmm. you know things will change. At some point, the emotion will change. The attachment you have will change. Things transform. I think what most people get caught in is they feel they have to act. And mm-hmm. once you've uh, taken action, sometimes actually action, Helps resolve things and helps you clarify. But often you it's very uncomfortable to just stay with things and think, well, what's this really about? What's the situation about? You know, why do I am I going this clear direction or the other? I mean, you could take it to those simple levels, right? Why am I taking this side in, in a, an issue or the other? If you just stay with it, right? Um, sometimes you realize that it's not about, actually, I'd say most of the time, you realize that. The issue is much bigger than you thought it was. and But it was about something completely different. And if you wait long enough, and that's the burning idea, they just burn with it. You just let it kind of ugh, uh, make you feel uncomfortable. And then suddenly something changes and you wake up the next day. I experienced this. I think I've talked about this before when I when I was in the middle of um, trying to leave my PhD and feeling like, okay, well, what do I do? I wanted another path, but I was really afraid to leave because then, you know, all those years and blah, blah. And it was like, it was really difficult. It was a p- really difficult period in my life. And ultimately what, what actually happened beyond a whole bunch of external things is that um, it was waiting. It was just sitting with it and going, this isn't right for me. And it was like, I, when I actually made the decision, you would think I made it in the moment. It wasn't. It had been because it had been just, you know, stirring in me for so long. And then at that moment, I was ready to take the step to leave England and, and abandon the whole project. So that's just one example I have, which is where you are at a point where, you know, something isn't working, but you don't really know how to get out of it. Anyway, so I recommend this book. I've gone on about it. I, I, I just, for anybody who's interested in Jung, I think I would read the Red Book and then I would read this and just to see okay, does this, this make sense? Uh, I was looking around, usually with Lance Owens, you can find talks that he's given, but I couldn't find anything on this particular book. He's given talks on the Tolkien, which I really recommend if you're interested in J.R. Tolkien's work. But I, I didn't find anything on on this, and I wish he would talk more about it because I think it's fabulous. And I think after this book, he wrote something on another person who we might want to discuss one day, which is Eric Neumann. Um, and so he went down that path. So anyway.
1: In the sun.
0: Hey, well, what about music? What are you listening to? What are you thinking about music? Anything that has changed or developed or I don't know what happens with music? No
1: revisiting things. I've, I've, uh, um, uh, gone back to, um, Jeff Buckley. It's, it's been, you know, I go through phases with him and it's sometimes years, many years between because he is so heavy, but his, his, First album, which he had two, but one was posthumously released. Um, but his album Grace, I've listened to that a lot here lately, and you've listened to that as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, thank uh, you for introducing uh, me. No, I mean, I had but, no idea. Well, not really did you introduce me, actually, because Jay, I read a lot. You told me about <laughs> the book that had been created, Dream Brother, was it? I read yeah, so Dream much, I remember. and that's a really good biography of both Jeff Buckley and the father. And I found the father, I told you this as interesting as the sun, if not mm-hmm. more in some ways, just because his background mm-hmm. is so much more, you know? Uh, so yes. So there's been a lot of Jeff Buckley and I've been recommending Jeff Buckley to people and yes, he is, he is very, very interesting. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Particularly, particularly his um, original work, everyone, you know, pretty much knows hallelujah, Cohen's hallelujah, mm-hmm. but I, I'm really in his early work, you know, his, um. I was listening to an interview with his mother and about six months after Jeff died, She talked about the experience of knowing that he had an unfinished album that had been done in the studio. It sounds finished, actually, but he was such a perfectionist that that, you know, he he didn't think it was finished. And then he had what's called a very rudimentary um, uh, four track recorder in his small little rent house or or home that he paid for uh, in Memphis that he recorded sketches for songs. So he had this album that he had been working on in Memphis with with other musicians called My Sweetheart the Drunk. And what his mother Mary did was she collected all the material that he had that wasn't uh, that wasn't released from that period in his life, and she put together an album and included those rudimentary recordings mm. in something called uh, Sketches, because on the tape cover. It just had, Jeff had just written sketches on it, which were early the early stages of songs he was writing. So he wouldn't forget the ideas. Anyway, it's called Sketches for My Sweetheart the Drunk, which is also a fantastic listen. So, um, but I'm a huge Buckley enthusiast. Yes, I gathered. Yeah.
0: No, but he's good. He's definitely worth it. You haven't heard of him. And I mean, one of the things you talked about and then we checked is just how when he was, he first released this album. Yes, it got a lot of attention, but you know, not as much as it's getting really right now which uh um, right he keeps rising in the rolling I, stone best I, best album category yeah, of, when that of was, all time yeah
1: when that yeah. album was released in 93 or 94 it didn't move very well i think maybe right. it sold sold a copies which right. isn't is, is you no. know so but he's grown in popularity right. since his death which is a common story
0: yeah, you know, no, I hate to say that. it is, but in that case, I mean, the story. Anyway, I would recommend because I'm the reader. Uh, I would say that not that you don't read, we know you read, but I mean, I'm a little bit of an exaggerated reader. But if if you do get into Buckley, I think what you recommended was really good. Which is to read that biography because it does really, uh, it just gives so much context about the life and the, the music, and it's very very detailed as well. But you said also that it had a bit of a Jungian bent and that it was looking psychologically at these. Yes, father stories it's, it's yeah, a really and, good and, saturn story, and they do
1: and and they do and the author does you know look at things through uh you know like you said a union lens but but you get a sense of the unconscious of both yes. individuals right. uh and and it's it maybe some of that creativity on the author's part of course and, and intuition but it really works regardless of what's factual it's a it's a great biography well
0: it's really well researched so i'm not quite sure it is as long so i would say that whatever he could find and he looked at every letter and i mean if there's any any criticism there's sometimes it is too in-depth there's too much of an attempt to give you the date you know so he was clearly signaling right. i have done my work but sometimes it bogs down the writing but the actual story of the father who i had never heard of well i never heard of either one of them but the father even less right because you never talked about him either um because he's a folk singer it's different era whatever uh right. but the the way the the lives ended and the kind of themes of the absent father and the for the father who's should be absent because they're violent i mean it's just so interesting just on, on that kind of mythic level that families all rise to because that's where we pay play out our dramas mostly right um so yeah so anyway i think it's if you're going to discover him like i did for the first time you will love the music it is definitely gorgeous his voice is gorgeous the music is very beautiful but it's uh, yeah that book really adds another dimension completely to the whole to the whole story so i would recommend that that as well thanks for listening if you like jay's music and would like to support the creation of more follow the link to the gofundme page in the show notes you can support my work by buying my new novel, Invocation, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and through many booksellers across the world. For now, until next time.